This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Jacqueline Harvey, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much for having me, Cheryl. It is really very nice to have you here. I mean, we've crossed paths many times. We actually did a shoot one night. Um, it was very, very awkward. <laughs> it was a bit awkward in the dark on a dock uh, down at the Sydney Writers Festival. That's right. And we couldn't find a very well-lit space, so I, I do remember crouching down next to a light on the side of the yeah. dock, but it all was fine in the end. So. It was, because it did really well. I remember that. Um, so you have had just a stellar career in terms of writing for children. I'm going to introduce you. Uh, you're an Australian children's author. Uh, you've worked in schools for many years and have had a passion for storytelling since you were a child. Jackie is the author of a popular, uh, the popular Alice Miranda and Clementine Rose series, which have sold over one million copies. I mean, can you believe no, that? No, it blows my mind. Every time I, I see that number, I'm th- I think, wow, that's, that's really and incredible. It hasn't been a long period of time, No, not it? really. Um, the first Alice Miranda was released in uh, February 2010, and mm. then the first Clementine Rose came out in uh, September 2012. So it's it's relatively short yeah. time, you know, in, in terms of a, a long career. Uh, and I've only been doing it full time. I've only been writing full time since the end of uh, the end of 2012. So it's just over six wow. years that I've been working on the books full time. So yeah, it does, it, it really is uh, very humbling, actually. It's a magna- magnificent achievement, particularly in the area of children's books, which can be very, very challenging. Yeah, and very competitive too. Yes. And, you know, kids, kids know what they like. And mm-hmm. They they just don't pull any punches as far no. as, you know, if they like something, they really seem to go for it. And, you know, there's so much good stuff out there. And I think it's it's all about discoverability as well. So I know with Alice Miranda, I was working full time for the first almost three years when that series launched. And so I didn't have a lot of time to do promotions or go mm. on tour. And what I, I know, um, you know, it happened that the kids were the ones telling each other, oh, you've got to read this book. And word of mouth. Yeah, word of mouth. I, I really don't think you can beat it as far as, you know, if kids like something, they will tell their friends. And It's the same with adult fiction. Yeah, that's very it is true. It's exactly the yeah, same. Yeah, very true. Let me finish the intro. <laughs> <And we'll come laughs> got sidetracked. Yeah, yeah. We got sidetracked with having sold over one million copies in Australia alone. And you've received numerous shortlistings and awards. Um, and you've also um, got a picture book. The Sound of the Sea, which was a CBCA honour book. Um, Jacqueline is also the creator of the best-selling uh, Kenzie and Max series, which is just, is this number one in the series? Uh, that's number three, so three. It's in, in 12 months there's three. So. Wow, okay. Featuring a pair of intrepid young twins who also happen to be spies. She's here today to talk about the third and latest instalment, Kenzie and Max Undercover, as well as to discuss her prolific career and her passion for kids' education and literature, because you are the real deal, aren't you? 
I hope so. I want to <laughs> start very, very where much it all so, started. I guess. Yeah, okay. So <clears throat> where did you grow up and how – so I guess your first pas- passion was to be a teacher. Was that, it was, was that right? absolutely. And uh, so I grew up uh, – I, I moved to Camden when I was about nine and a half. Mm-hmm. And up until that point, I hadn't – been really keen about school. You know, I, I, I quite liked school, but I had a few scary teachers when I was really small. And, you know, the idea of being a teacher would never have occurred to me, I don't think, back then. And then when I moved to Camden, I had this amazing teacher for the second half of fourth grade and all of fifth grade. Um, and would you believe I actually went to the school where she's the principal just two weeks ago? Oh, is that right? Um, yeah. So um, she's still teaching. She's she's the principal of Middle Harbour Public School at, at the moment. And unfortunately, she wasn't there when I was there. But um, I have a, in my pre- slide presentation, I have a, a photograph and her and I are in this picture oh. and I, the, the kids and the staff didn't know and I said, oh, I have a connection to your school. And in fact, it was really funny because one of the children said, yes, you were Miss Hannon's teacher. And I'm looking around the room thinking one of my ex-students was actually a teacher at their school, which it turned out to be, that to be the case. But uh, when I said to them, no, the lady up on the screen is your principal and I've known her since I was nine and a half years old, it was just lovely. And and to tell the kids about what an influence, excuse me, Sally Hogan had on me as a child and um, her creativity and her passion for learning is what, what made me want to be a teacher. And so... You know, from that very young age, I always wanted to do that, but I was also that kid who always had a story to tell. Mm. And I guess the the two went hand in glove over time because when I became a teacher, I would tell a lot of stories to my class. I would write stories and poems and And plays. And were you a big reader? I was a really big reader as a child. Um, Unfortunately, not so much in high school. I I really kind of lost the passion for reading a bit in high school. That tends to drift then, doesn't it? Yeah, but fortunately, you know, came back to it um, university sort of level. Um, But yeah, I I always sort of thought, well, wonder if I could write for a broader audience than just for my own class. And Mm. that's when I decided to give the writing a go. I want to talk to you about teaching first. I mean, it is so, as you've pointed out, uh, you know, a, a teacher or a good teacher is life-changing, isn't Absolutely. It? They definitely yeah. can change your life and make you look at things in, in completely different ways. And, you know, for me, uh, one of the things that Sally inspired for me was that particularly in primary school, children should have fun every single day. Mm. You know, learning should be fun. And if, if you come to school and you want to be there and you think we're going to do something really fun today, then it makes life so much better. Mm. And I think for me as a teacher, I was all about the creative experiential learning, um, you know, crazy projects that I used to do, like digging a huge hole in the playground uh, in the school holidays, burying ancient Egyptian artefacts and then having <laughs> the kids excavate them for an entire term and then research. <laughs> well, you know, I did write a big story to go with yeah, it to tell them how we fantastic. magically got transported to, to Egypt. But, you know, that sort of thing where kids actually see that learning is real, I think yeah. that's so that's so important. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's so much conversation around teaching these days and working in schools and, you know, often people say that the, the pressure on teachers, and I think there is a lot of pressure, and I, I do honestly believe that they work very hard and, and they get underpaid. But there's also those teachers that don't have the passion that can really stifle a child's learning as well. Yeah, it's it is a, it's a it's a tricky thing, and yes, I I agree. There's too much there's too much paperwork these days. Oh, you know, for so me, when pressure. when uh, you know when they brought in the the risk assessments, and you know, fair enough, you've got to you've got to make sure that you're you're going yeah. to be safe. But I'm sure no teacher ever felt safer for having filled out sort of 50 pages of paperwork before they yeah. went on a school trip. And, and that kind of thing is killing the spontaneity of teaching, which is really unfortunate because 
you know, teachers have they often go into it very wide-eyed and, and excited and, and so optimistic. And passionate. And passionate, absolutely. And and you don't want that to be, you know, to, to leave teachers because they sort of feel browbeaten by all the all the extra things and the paperwork and the expectations and uh, and all of that. You know, the curriculum is crowded enough as it is and then when you layer upon, you know, there's, there's another thing that they've got to teach. You know, they've got to teach... Um, you know, it might be some extra additional health component or it might be uh, some other sort of social issues that they've, they've got to teach, which is, you know, is great. But when it's taking away from core time for teaching, you know, your maths yes. and your, your reading and, and your spelling and your writing and all those things, it just feels like there's so much competition. What about managing parents and parent involvement? How yeah, did look. you deal with that? That's not easy. And let's give some tips from some parents Oh, here. look, it's, it is an interesting thing. I, I used to always say that it was um, it was about... Two uh, percent of the parents that would take up ninety-eight percent of my time, yeah, it's particularly when I was the deputy head at the school. Um, look, I think parents have to be trusting that the teachers are doing the right thing. They're professionals. They are professionals. They are doing the right thing. And you know, if you have a, there are ways and means also to uh, to talk to. Uh, you know the the teachers and confronting a teacher at the beginning of the day in front of a classroom is is not a great way to to get your point across. So I think just you know using channels that are uh, you know using the proper channels, but also I think email has really changed things because a lot of parents I know will email a teacher and expect a response you know in a minute. Um, whereas well, meanwhile they're in the classroom exactly teaching. they're in the yeah. classroom with 28 kids and they don't have time to respond straight away and I know lots of schools have put in procedures and you know policies in place but I think that that immediacy of life these days um, you can't expect that of a teacher who's in front of a class of 28 kids but you know conversely as a parent you expect your teacher to be professional so yeah. you know it cuts both ways. Yeah. Um, would, would you give any advice? Is it just like in terms of parents out there? What are parents really concerned about? I think they're concerned about lots of things. I, I think actually bullying is one of the prime concerns for parents at the, you know, in this day and age. Do you think that's age. worse than what it was? I think it's worse because of social media. I think it's... Even it, at that age? Yeah, look, primary. I think it's... Yeah, even in primary. I think it's much more insidious than it used to be because, you know, we, we could go home from primary school and we just left it all at the gate, you know, yeah. and nobody video, videoed us doing something silly uh, that could then be loaded to the internet and broadcast to the whole world. And, you know, I know I, I have two nephews and two nieces. Um, my oldest nephew has only just gone to high school this year. And I know in primary school, in upper primary school, there were issues with online bullying and uh, kids, you know, writing quite heinous things. And I think that's they don't have the maturity or the, the development to realise that that's permanent, that's out there in the world. And so I think, uh, yeah, definitely there's a lot of pressure to do with um, to do with bullying, to do with social media. I would say, you know, limit your child's social media time or, or social media access at all in primary school. Um, and, I didn't think you and could phones. get onto it. Until... Well, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to be 13. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I can tell you I know lots of kids that unfortunately... What about phones in schools? Oh, it's a it's a really tricky one. The phone in the school. I think I, ban them. I think they should be banned as well. Why I, don't, I don't schools do that? Is it because the pressure from parents? I think there's a lot of pressure from parents who think, well, I need to be able to contact my child after school. And in that case, you know, if you have them at school, then have a little collection bo basket yeah, that you put them absolutely. in at the beginning of the day, and the kids collect them afterwards. Because, you know, I've been in schools, obviously. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now I don't just work in one school. I work in thousands of schools all around the world, you know, in Australia and across the world. And you know, there's nothing worse than seeing kids in the playground at lunchtime and they're, they're texting or they're looking at, at um, Insta, Instagram or they're looking at, you know, I'm talking more of secondary schools here, but they're not talking to each other. They're not engaging with each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really unhealthy way to be that, you know, we're losing the art of conversation. Yeah. Uh, we need to we need to be able to teach kids to relate to each other away from that whole technology platform. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. I mean, I think there's a lot of good places um, and there's a lot of good things around social media. But I don't think particularly in primary, I don't think it's warranted, even in high school. No, you know, no. I think it's, it, it leaves – it just – puts a huge amount of pressure on children that it's it's another added level of pressure that a lot of kids you know as I said the maturity is not there they don't know how to deal with it it can often be knee-jerk reactions and you know we all we've all been told you know if you can't say something nice don't say anything at all and the trouble is you know as a child you might have had a fight with your best friend and you have said something mean but you know it was just it was the words they came out but the words are gone when it's on social media, it's there forever. Yeah, it's a long time. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about your career. So how long were you teaching? So I was a classroom teacher for about 12 years and then I was a deputy head, non-teaching deputy head. But when I say non-teaching, you know, I used to work with classes in the library or I would work on special projects and that sort of thing. So I still very much had a, a foot in the door in, in the classrooms and worked yep. across the school. And, and the beauty of that was I got to work with kids from, you know, K right through to six and sometimes even into the secondary school because the, the school that I finished working at had a, a secondary school uh, com- um, as well as the, the infants and primary school. So, um, yeah, I, I loved teaching. Uh, Was it a big decision to leave? Huge, and write for yeah, absolutely huge. In fact, I prior to um, becoming a full-time writer, I had actually moved into a different job. So I became what was called the director of development of the school that I worked in. So I had, um, in, in that role, I looked after... Uh, communications, fundraising, uh, the, all the old the old stu- past students uh, looked after, you know, media, all that kind of uh, thing. And and I, I went to that job when the school turned 125, so I had a pretty big you know, year that year. Yeah. Uh, events that was another thing, but in many ways that was great training for becoming a full time writer because now I do lots of events, I do lots of media, yeah. uh, I do I, I work uh, with 
several charity organisations for fundraising. So, you know, yeah. it, it was a great training ground. But in terms of the, the final decision, yes, you know, working in school is a very safe, secure job. Being yeah. an, an author is not a very safe <laughs> and secure job at all. The absolute opposite, I'd It's say. the antithesis when you, uh, yeah. you know, pretty much you get paid twice a year and you yeah. don't really know how much you're going to get paid. But, yeah, uh, yeah look, it was, a, it was a leap of faith that I'm very glad that I made. So tell me, when did the writing start? For me, the yeah. the actual writing look right back in in beginning of high school, even before that, when primary school, I used to write. You know, I used to love writing poems and things. When I was in high school, I was that kid that kept a diary from the very yes. beginning of high school, and I have still have them all. So embarrassing, <laughs> you know, the, the diaries that have, um, you know, the, the all about which which boy I had a crush on. Or did you have a lock on your diary? No, I didn't because my sisters were very good. They never stole my diaries. <laughs> um, but they're all in a they're all in a crate at home, and I, I think, oh, I wonder if I should burn those at some stage. Oh, you don't want to burn them. <laughs> no, it's um, and then as a as a um, teenager in high school, I really loved. English and I loved history yeah. and so you know whenever there was an opportunity to write a story um, I was you know there with bells on and I, I won a competition when I was about 15 for a, just a local writing competition and th- and I won and that kind of you know yeah. it really just gave me that little seed of an idea that oh, maybe one day I could write something that people would read yeah. and then when I went to university I uh, studied obviously studied teaching but I did children's literature as one of my um, elective courses all the way through. And I remember one of my uni lecturers, a uh, lovely man called Pat Farrar, and he said to me once, you know, you really should try writing some things for kids. But it wasn't until pretty much 10 years later that I thought, yeah, I, I will give it a proper go. Okay. And tell me what a proper go looked like. Oh, a proper go was, you know, writing something and then So this it. is after work, you're right. Yeah. So this yeah. is after work, you know, this is on the weekends, this is trying to write something that, you know, you think might be worthy of of publication. So I, I would write some stories and then I would test them out on my kids at school because you have the, the best, yeah. um, you, you have this fantastic test audience, if you yeah. like. And uh, and as long they're as you have... They're captive as well. They're they captive. <laughs> they can't go anywhere. And uh, and I always had very, very good, honest, open relationships with the kids that I taught. So, yeah. you know, they would happily tell you that it was rubbish if yeah. it was rubbish. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I sent a few things off unsolicited to publishers and nothing happened, you know, right in the beginning. Um, so you were and, writing full young fiction. Yeah, I was writing for, for kids uh, yeah. at, at that time. And I remember I wrote... For th- what age group? Uh, look, I probably wrote, you know, m- sort of about eight, nine-year-olds. Yeah. Um, and then I did write a full novel. I wrote a full novel which I'd called Oliver's, Oliver's Secret. And then after I'd finished it, I realised it was sort of had already been done in many and varied ways. So uh, that would never see the light of day. Um, and, and it's that, I guess having the bravery to send stuff off and and back in those days it's you know I'm really talking over scary. 20 years ago that you yeah. ha- you used to have to send a stamped self-addressed envelope with your manuscript yeah. and you know you'd you'd go to the post box and all of a sudden there'd be a big parcel for you and then you'd, you your heart would sink because you think oh oh that's the parcel I sent to them <laughs> coming back again <laughs> so you know I had my share of rejections in in the those early days mm. and then it was I, I took a I took some long service leave and actually moved to Byron Bay for about a year and a bit. So to write, to write, and yeah, just to take some time out. Mm. And because it's a hard job. Yeah, and and I was casual teaching, but I was trying to write. And yeah. and again, it was really frustrating. Nothing much was happening, and I ended up taking a job at a school in Sydney that I ended up working at for eleven and a half years. And uh, thinking on, you know, just keep going, but maybe nothing will ever come of it. 
And I'd only been at the school for literally about a week and I won a competition with the New South Wales Children's Book Council branch for an unpublished manuscript and the competition was very aptly called the Frustrated Writers Mentoring Competition because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's more frustrating than not being uh, picked yeah. up. And so um, that won me a mentor right. and uh, and a little bit of money and so I, I then sort of thought, well, you know, you won that so maybe there's an opportunity to you know, be in front of some publishers. And, and it, how valuable was that? Very valuable because what it did, when I when I called the couple of publishers, I'd already sent that manuscript to a few different publishers and yeah. I had to call them and get it back because ironically Random House had the first right of refusal on that manuscript. Um, they never ended up publishing that but then my publisher, you know, they've been my publisher for all of Alice Miranda, Clementine Rose and Kenzie Max. But I, when I called the publishers to pull the book, I was, instead of being sort of, uh, answered by the receptionist and said, you know, and having a lovely little conversation with the receptionist. I remember at this one particular publisher, they said, would you like to speak to a publisher? And I was just, I, I think my tongue was in a knot. I didn't yeah. know what I was going to say. And that actually, you know, one thing led to another and I ended up with a, a, a three-book series um, and, and they published the picture book eventually as well and that was with Hel Helen Chamberlain um, when she worked with Lothian Books in Melbourne when it was a, a small independent Australian publisher. Um, oh, how fabulous. So, which was amazing. And so, yeah, and then that book, that that, actually, that manuscript was The Sound of the Sea, which ended up becoming an honour book in the Children's Book Awards in mm -hmm. 2006. And then for a long time I thought maybe I'm meant to write picture books and I started Alice Miranda with the intent of Alice Miranda being a picture book. And now we have uh, just about to launch the 18th book in the series in uh, in June and each book is about 60,000 words long. So yeah. clearly the picture book thing wasn't meant for me. No, <laughs> no, no, no I, can t I can tell that by, by, by the way you speak as well. So um, have you finished? Where are you at with all of the series? Okay, so Alice Miranda number 18 is out yeah. in June and then I'm writing number 19 and number 20. I'm contracted to do that many. Yeah. Clementine Rose, um, we're up to number 14 and I'm writing number 15 later this year and... And so that, they will continue. Well, Clemmy is probably going to take a rest at 15. Yeah. Um, because Kenzie and Max is just out and, you know, just really starting their journey. And so we've got, uh, we've had three books out in this 12 months. Um, and I've got I've got contracts for an, another three books in that series. And the first four are actually going to America at the beginning of next year. So they've been bought by an American publisher, which is fantastic. fantastic. So. Is this the first time? No, I had uh, I had uh, Alice Miranda and Clementine Rose are, are, are published in America. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's always lovely to have that affirmation to take things to other countries. Yeah. So it's fantastic. It really is fantastic. The sales are great, but the sales are great because it's word of mouth. And really, I think children's books more than any other category, um, if kids like it, they will talk Kids about like it, it, they will talk, absolutely. They yeah. really will. And they love a series, don't they? They do, they do. And, you know, we found that with Kenzie and Max starting off and, um, you know, I was doing events at the weekend down yeah. in Melbourne and, you know, kids were coming along with all three of their Kenzie and Max books and, you know, when's the next one? And, and kids are very impatient. When they love a series, they want the next one yeah. in a heartbeat. Yeah. And they'll often tell me, that they've already read it and, when, you know, how long How long do I have to wait? Yeah. Which Isn't is that fantastic? It's wonderful. It's really fantastic. To see that enthusiasm. Uh, Jacqueline Harving, congratulations. Thank you very much. Cheryl. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. 
This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play, or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.